everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Sheriff Jerry Clayton from Washtenaw County, Michigan. He's recently unofficially won his fourth term and he'll be officially elected in November. And he's run on a platform of reducing incarceration and increasing mental health treatment. Welcome to the show, Sheriff Clayton. Uh, Thank you, David. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, about 22 years ago in my county in California, uh, we elected a sheriff who at the time was the only elected Democrat uh, to be a sheriff in California and also, I believe, the only Latino Uh, elected sheriff in California. And while he was more liberal than a lot of the other sheriffs in the state, he was basically a law and order guy and not really a reformer. Now, I caught you on a webinar a few months ago, and you talked about the fact that you don't have a lot of like-minded allies among sheriffs across the country. Um, So what makes you different from all other sheriffs? Um, Yeah, I don't know if I'm different from all of the sheriffs. I mean, there there are a few of us out there, but when you look at the, in its totality, I think there's 3,000 sheriffs. Um, I think uh, I'm pretty safe to say um, we're in the minority. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's personal beliefs, right? It's, it's uh, what, what your basic assumptions are about the role that police play, that uh, sheriffs play in the larger criminal justice system. Um, do you believe in that traditional law and order? And, and we can explore that at some point in terms of what that really means. Or, or do we believe in the law in terms of respect for the law and respect for the rule of law, but think about uh, co-producing public safety, uh, understanding that uh, it really does require a trusting, enduring relationship with the people that you are sworn to serve uh, to identify the outcomes that we want and the strategies to get there. Um, I, I think that's the approach. And you know, a lot of the conversations that, that I've had with colleagues across um, almost 30 years, that approach seems to be in the minority. Now, you're in a similar county to me um, because uh, Ann, uh, Ann Arbor is in your county, and I have uh, a major college, UC Davis, in my county. Um, but what's that like? I, I mean, has that helped to drive uh, a reform agenda or has it hindered it in your view? You know, I think that's a great question. And I, which I, 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 what 
what I'm getting from your question is the the liberal bent, right? This this progressive right um, set of values that exist in this county, exist in the city of Ann Arbor. I think to some degree, if you understand what the landscape is, it can be to to your advantage. So I'll say a couple things. This is not a pro quote uh, quote unquote law enforcement county. It's not a pro police county. It is very much prides itself on being a human services county you know, providing a social safety net for people. And it's probably very similar to the county that you live in. Um, and that's okay. Um, but as I approach and talk to, to the constituents that I serve and talk to other elected officials, I frame what we do in a human services um, architecture. I make it very clear that many of our, our deputy sheriffs, whether they realize it or not, um, do a lot of things that are consistent with what social workers do. And we just happen to do it when oftentimes when people are more in crises than a lot of social workers that do it when people come to them. We meet people where they are and oftentimes when they're in their worst light. So it's not just about enforcing the law. It's about delivering services that help people navigate probably oftentimes their most troubling lives. So that helps, right? So if you can approach it that way, you know, I'm a firm believer in knowing where you live and work and the values that drive a community where you live and work, and to shape your public policy, operational protocols, values of the organization to align with the values in the community. So, but, but the, here's the other side, here's the darker side to the coin of living and working in quote unquote, a liberal progressive community. I believe that oftentimes the most dangerous racism is liberal racism. Because oftentimes people that view themselves as liberal and progressive and, and work for uh, the, uh, the, the, the people that, are, that, that need a social safety net and want to advocate for people of color, I think oftentimes they do it from a, a position of, well, let me save you and help you. And that's not what, what black and brown people need. That's not equity. That's not... Um, that's, that's not what we want. Equity is let's create the kind of space where everybody has the same opportunity for success. Not a handout, but a level playing field. And when the playing field is not level, put policies in place that, uh, sorry about that, um, put policies in place that, 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 that help people position themselves for success. So, because we tout ourselves as being progressive, we're blind to a lot of our, I think, biased and uh, racist institutional policies that result in disparate treatment of people. And we're not honest with ourselves. And I think sometimes that makes it very difficult. Well, it's very interesting, um, your approach to that <clears throat> answer. Uh, and you didn't start out going the way I thought you were going to go, but you ended up in that place. Um, but what's really interesting is I've had the exact same experience here. Um, we're a liberal community. I assumed 15 years ago that uh, this community would support certain liberal policies. And when it came to race and police reform and things like that, it didn't. And um, I was very surprised by that. And I learned a lot from it. And, and so I think, I think your observation is spot on. Uh, that uh, 
there, there are groups in the community that pride themselves on being progressive and liberal, but when it comes to stuff right next to them, um, they, they are liberal. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll vote for Obama, but uh, they voted against police reform. So it, it was an interesting uh, dichotomy. And, and if I can just, 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 just sort of add on to that, and it's funny. So here, there's a strong advocacy for police reform, right? So, so they are talking about it, but they're talking about it. So, so let's, let's, let's dissect just really quickly, if you allow me, this whole question around defunding the police. Yeah. So the people I'm hearing talking about defunding the police are the people that live in communities where they just not. They're not. They're not. They're not calling the police that often. They can um, walk uh, their dog in the evening without fear of, of 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 oftentimes of any violence. They can get up and jog in the morning. They sit on their decks and all that. Now they want to defund the police. When I go to the communities that are socioeconomically challenged, where we spend a lot of our time because we get called there because of um, you know certain activities that are going on. They're not talking about defunding the police. They're telling me, Sheriff, we want to make sure you have what you need. What we want to make sure of, you treat us right. So treat us with dignity and respect. Understand that black lives matter. Understand the humanity of people. We don't want you to go anywhere. So again, it's this mantra that I think oftentimes is picked up in this progressive space that is really not reflective of what is needed from the people that they say they're advocating for. My concern around this defunding and all this other kind of stuff is you're going to hurt the people you say you want to help. Now I'm all for reimagining. I'm all for us being creative and busting up the status quo because I think the status quo is riddled with institutional and systemic racism, but not the way that I hear some people talking about it, which I think, I don't think is deliberate. I don't think it's thoughtful. And I think at the end of the day, it's very harmful. So along that line, let me ask you this, um, because we've had this broad discussion. I mean, do you believe that the police should be the ones responding to mental health calls, for instance? Um, yes and no. So when I, I do believe in reimagining how we co-produce public safety. And for those with mental health issues, here's a couple things that people just need to, to keep in mind. Oftentimes, so we, we, we've looked at our stats, and we believe that our staff in a, in a county of about 365,000 people um, we believe we respond to uh, maybe four or five calls a day um, where people are mostly disturbed. But those calls don't come in as mental health calls. They come in as another kind of call. They come in as an allegation of criminal behavior. And then when staff get on the scene, because they've been trained in managing mental health crises, they start to discern, oh, this person is in mental health crisis. So now I got to respond a different way. Um, so what will happen is if we say, well, we're not going to send the police to any mental health calls, that's fine. But people need to understand that police are still going to arrive on a scene where there are people in mental health crises. You just didn't know it when you got there. Here's the other thing to understand, that oftentimes the mental health crisis that someone is in is wrapped into these other situations. 
And although there are a lot of mental health clinicians that operate out in the field now every day, and they respond to calls from clients every day, there are a lot of mental health clinicians that say, look, I don't want, don't send me into this danger zone, even with someone with a mental health crisis, uh, if I'm not prepared to be able to handle the, the dangerousness associated with that situation. So what I advocate for is let's be smarter about how we handle mental health situations. Let's train our dispatchers to ask different kinds of questions, more probing questions, and for them to be able to pick up on signals where someone may be in a mental health crisis. And then maybe we send co-responders. So in Washington County, we're just starting to um, develop a program uh, that we hope we're going to be able to put in place where we're going to team a mental health uh, clinician in the same car with a deputy sheriff on patrol. And for so if you got better trained dispatchers that can ask the questions better, then they can dispatch that unit to some of these situations. Because what's happening now, we have a great crisis team that responds. So now our deputies respond. They find somebody in mental health crisis. They back up. Then they call the crisis team. Well, it might take the crisis team 20 to 30 minutes to get there. So we practice de-escalation, creating space. But what happens in that 20 to 30 minutes? What if we put them both in the same unit? They both get trained. Uh, when there's a situation where the mental health worker needs to take the lead, the, the police officer steps back. Police officer needs to take the lead. The mental health uh, uh, person sort of steps back but, but provides support. So I think we, uh, we have to have a strategy for folks with mental health disorder. I'm just not certain that this concept of just get the police totally out of it is actually the most helpful and strategic way of doing it. So I hear you on that point. Um, and, you know, it's an issue I struggle with because, uh, unfortunately, from personal experience this year, we, uh, our oldest uh, had a series of uh, mental health crises and we ended up with the police coming out each time. And in the back of my mind, each time, uh, you know, I'm fearful. What happens if he does something? What happens if he decides that he wants to grab for somebody's gun? Uh, and, and that's in the back of my mind the whole time. And, you know, my, my, my kid is mixed race, uh, but, you know, the cops all know us. Uh, so it, it always turned out okay. But, you know, I always had in the back of my mind, well, this could go a very different way. Um, and so how do we get past that? concern because I see a lot of these end up, uh, you know, police involved shootings, uh, start out as mental health calls, um, or, or drug calls, which I also view as largely mental health calls. Yes. Yes. Um, I think your concern is legitimate. Um, I think, uh, we have to get better. So, so, from a societal standpoint, we have to, to get better. But the police, we have to get better. So we have to, we have to. First off, I think we need to put the right protocols in place. So if it's not the, 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 the strategy the way I designed it, the way I just talked about it, some kind of strategy where there are times where police is not, they're not the lead. There may be times where they don't even show up. But we, from a societal standpoint, in a community, have to talk about what that looks like. Because see what's happening, what happens a lot of times is, you know, the community may say something, then the elected officials get up 
they start talking, but they don't have to execute the strategy. But if we can get everybody together and say, look, in our community, what do we want our mental health responses to look like? And start to really um, dig deep and identify what we call ultimate outcomes, the ultimate outcomes that we want. You know, and, the, and our ultimate outcome would be in a mental health crisis that our, our patient, our person that's suffering a crisis, gets the support they need, gets connected to the resource that they need, that they need in the least harmful way. Now, that's physical, emotional, and psychological. I think that's a legitimate ultimate outcome for a community to have. And then we ask the question, okay, what strategies do we need to put in place to get to that outcome? Okay, we need trained police officers, trained dispatchers, trained clinicians. We need operational policies and protocols that dictate who goes where, when. We need to, then we need to actually execute that and evaluate it and, and tweak it and change it. And, and that's how we start to get it. And then we look at the structure. So once we've got the strategy laid out, then we say, okay, based on our community needs, we look at the historical data and project forward. Based on the outcomes we want, our community needs, we need X number of mental health professionals on 24-7 to accomplish that. And then we need X number of police officers. Now, remember, when the police officers aren't answering those calls, they're answering other calls. So this whole thing about I want to take money from the police and give it somewhere else, that's, that's the wrong approach. We have to invest the right kind of money in that. You may have to invest more money in police because you want them trained, or at least the same amount. And now I got to invest in other services in the community to get to the desired outcome. But here's the key, David. I didn't start with the money. We started with the outcome. So in government, we're famous for starting with money first. That restricts creativity. It restricts everything when we start talking about we start with money well, i only got a million dollars so i've already boxed myself in but if i start with the outcomes i want the strategies to get there agreed upon between government and community now we can find the money we need to make it happen and i think you're right because you know one of the things i've observed in my 15 years of doing this is that you know people will often focus on hey we can save money this way and and you never end up saving money because money uh, there's not enough money to begin with. And so if you take the approach that we need to do this stuff because it's cheaper, you're, 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 you've already lost. I think your approach is better that what we need to do is figure out what we need to do and then figure out how to pay for it. That's right. I mean, we've, we've done that to some degree in Washington County. So in Washington County back in all oh, the years are starting to stay, uh, blend together. I think it was 2017, we passed a public safety mental health millage, uh, an eight-year millage, uh, generating millions of dollars, certain percentage for mental health, certain percentage for public safety. And we work, we work really, really uh, collaboratively with our community of mental health. Uh, and it's the director of community mental health and myself that's really starting to talk about putting this unit together. And, and working on a, a community, um, you know, like a 48-hour triage center and all of those things. So, and, and we, we sold that millage on, you can't under-invest. If this is a priority issue, you know, and I'm really keen on, there's very few times I say to people, I'm going to save you money. What I will say is, look, we're going to gain, we're going to hear the outcome. If you agree, this is the outcomes we want. Uh, then the conversation 
this is the level of investment that we have to make as a community to get to those outcomes. And now 12 years in, we're always on budget or under budget. We have um, um, earned credibility in the community where we say this is the level of investment we need to get to these outcomes. People trust that we're not wasting the money. So let me shift gears a little bit. Um, and you had mentioned that you do believe that there's institutional racism in policing. Um, so I want to understand better from your perspective what that looks like and, and then how do we address it? Yeah, so um, 400 years now, 401, 402 years of the African-American experience in this country has been a racist experience. Uh, there's no argument. Anyone who wants to argument, argue about it, there are more than enough facts that, to, to go with that. So that's the first thing. We live in a country that is built on um, a large part of the narrative is racist in nature. Uh, we're human beings. We're flawed. We all have our biases. We're all influenced by it. And we have, we have, we have, not, we have never had a national strategy to actually surface our biases and put strategies in place to mitigate our biases on each other. So I think that's, so we start off with the premise that bias exists because we're human beings and it exists because there's an institution, there's a, a history in this country. Now let's just take policing. <clears throat> uh, all the way from the, uh, I think, late, early, mid to late 1700s with the Carolina Colony uh, slave patrols was one of the first instances of this, 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 I wouldn't say formalized, but organized group of individuals enforcing laws and enforcing uh, rules of society. And that was all around protecting property, human property. So there's a history there. And then we just go from that from the slavery days to emancipation and, and, and organized groups of people under the color of some kind of societal expectation holding down African-Americans, to Reconstruction, um, to Jim Crow, through civil rights. Um, people in power, governmental officials in power, have used some form of quote-unquote law enforcement to uh, attack African-Americans, to under cut their ability to have their constitutional rights. It's historic. And there's never been an intentional national strategy to address that, right? Because there's too many police departments and all of that. So that's part of the history. Uh, so there's no getting around it. Uh, I spent almost 20 years outside of the sheriff's office working in this racial profiling space, uh, working with a gentleman who I think is an outstanding uh, his name is uh, Dr. John Lambert, who did one of the first racial profiling studies in New Jersey, the DeSoto case in New Jersey. He and I teamed up and we did traffic stop studies all over the country. We even did ethnic profiling studies in Europe. And we saw, there were sometimes we did studies and we didn't see disparate impacts on black people in terms of traffic stops, but there were times when we saw a lot of them. And then I did some of the training associated with and I'd give a scenario like uh, you live in a, there's a neighborhood, you're a police officer and you are, you're patrolling an area that is predominantly people of color, low socioeconomic 
some reputation of narcotics dealing going on. Now, I can also say you could be in a, a white neighborhood, high socioeconomic, and there's narcotics traffic going on there. Difference is street level versus behind closed doors, people selling it very quiet. There's no incentive for people to sort of uh, tell on the drug dealer because they're all in it in the high end. In the low end, there's incentive because there's street crime that goes along with that. So you see two white guys at 11 o'clock at night as a police officer drive in and out of like this little cul-de-sac. And you focus your attention on them. You make a traffic stop on them. And invariably, we give that scenario, and there's a little more to it. Most of the police officers say, yeah, I'm going to stop them. And the question is, well, why? Who are the white guys in a black neighborhood at 11 o'clock at night? They're only doing a couple of things, five dope, probably one of them. And that's unusual for this time. And they don't belong there. And then we had this conversation about, well, I must have missed uh, in my constitutional law class that amendment that they do, they do not belong amendment. Where, where did that come in? And then we've started to conflate unusual with suspicious. And I said, well, okay, if we accept that, then that means if I'm jogging in a, a white neighborhood, you can stop me because that's unusual. Nah, nah, I don't really mean that. But see, you start, so if nobody's challenging that, the basic, so the societal basic assumption, and you know, there's more than, more than enough studies to show that black and brown has always been equated to crime and violence and dangerousness. dangerousness. And then in a lot of police departments, when you're going to go and make arrests, drug arrests, gun arrests, you go to the socioeconomically challenged place, which is oftentimes black and brown. But I could also take you to Oklahoma, Nebraska, and give you the same socioeconomic conditions for white folks, and they're doing the same thing. But that gets blocked out. So then that gets taught, and then it gets taught to the next generation of police officers and the next generation of police officers. And it becomes this institutional practice. And if it's never challenged, if it's never questioned, if it's never refuted, that becomes part of what we do. And if, if, if that is championed in the police department, right? So the person that gets the most dope and guns off the street by uh, having those practices, from having those kinds of practices, that gets rewarded. The people that get promoted are the people that make the most arrests, the most drug arrests, the gun arrests. We hire people that have that mindset. That's how it gets perpetuated. And it gets passed on. So, um, and that's what I've seen. And, 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 and again, I haven't seen a real organized, national, consistent strategy for, for, for reversing that trend. And I think you explained it really well. Um, you know, what I see is that, and I think a lot of people don't see this, is that there are conscious decisions on where to patrol and and where to put resources to fight crime, and those decisions have consequences. Are you there? Oh, yeah, I am. So, so those decisions have consequences, and uh, people don't see those as consequences. And so, you know, I think the drug issue is so clear because, you know, all the studies show blacks and whites use drugs about the same rate. They sell drugs about the same rate. And yet 80% of the people caught for, for drugs are, are people of color. 
Right. So, so you have a clear racial disparity in, in, in that, and that's all due to where where you decide to deploy your resources, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So, so yeah. So we're you know, and, and as a as a as a sheriff, as an African American sheriff, uh, I, I think about that so much, and and it's funny because. You know, and I've heard my colleagues say, and I'm, I try to be cognizant, well, that's where the crime is, or that's where we get called to. And there's some truth to that, right? But it doesn't mean that my only tool has to be the enforcement tool. It, it, if, if, if that's where the crime is, is it also part of it because of a lot of socioeconomic factors that have nothing to do with law enforcing the law, uh, home insecurity, food insecurity, school, health, all of those things. So do we have a role, and I'll say from a sheriff's office perspective, in, in our county, we believe we have a role, that we have a role in helping, helping connect people in those communities to the right resources. And also understanding that for some of the people that are perpetrating some of the crimes, especially if they're not, not crimes against uh, people, they're property crimes, and people have substance use disorder or mental health disorder, let's help them address that. So then they're less likely to commit another crime if, if we're helping them address their issues. So we still may have staff in those communities. We're still doing patrol in those communities. But it's, 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 it's what we're doing that may be different. It's how we do it and why we do it that may be different. Uh, perpetrators of violent crime, where we, you know, some people that are predators against other folks, we're going to catch them and we're going to put them in jail. But everybody in a socioeconomically challenged community aren't predators, even if they've committed certain crimes. Listen, we did a study in, in Michigan. We had 20 counties in Michigan. The third highest driving factor of people in our in jails in Michigan was driving while license suspended. So that said a lot to me, that, that we can hold people that are committing heinous crimes responsible, but everybody we come in contact with aren't committing heinous crimes. There's got to be another way for us to address it. And so I guess that gets to the overall question of how do we fix mass incarceration and what is a sheriff's role in that? So I think, so I, I think I think we have a big role because, you know, we have jails and um, and 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 road patrol, right? So we have we have both of these. Um, so on the patrol side is what I just said. You know, how do we engage community? Uh, is it more than just enforcement? Are we helping address root cause? And in the and and let's advocate for, um, you know, alternatives to incarceration roads, but also advocate for alternatives to incarcerations in the jail. That the jail should be reserved for people that are violent, that are predators, that hurt people. But the other folks that, that, that are in the criminal justice system that may have broken the law shouldn't be in jail. That there's got to be some alternatives to incarceration. And 
we should also be focused on helping people address root cause issues so they don't reoffend and they don't end up in the prison system or in the jail system. Now, I don't know what your stats look like, but I know overall, you know, there are stats that most people in county jails are there uh, for pretrial detention, and a lot of them are there simply because they cannot afford bail. Um, so it seems like bail reform goes hand in hand uh, with what you're talking about. Oh, definitely. So, so, so there's definitely a need for for, for bail reform. I mean, bail, it, you know, uh, personal recognizance used to be the default position in the criminal justice system. It's designed to be the default position that the government had to prove that. We, they needed something beyond the person's word for them to be held in jail for their next court appearance. And it's somehow we've got that twisted, where now there's this belief that people need to put money up to assure that they're going to return to their court date. And I think there have been enough studies to show that uh, monetary bail is not the, the leverage that is required to make people come, uh, appear for their next court date. That there are other factors, and and we also know that uh, there have been studies to show that even a couple of days spent in jail sometimes has a, a profound effect on a person's life, especially if they're a family person. It impacts the family, it impacts that individual. So we should always be looking for alternatives to having people in jail, even for one or two days. Uh, and I think bail reform is a big part of that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, you put somebody in jail for a few days, that means they're not at work. And sometimes, you know, even two or three days is enough to lose a job. Um, and then it it starts a big spiral downward, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and again, yeah, that one or two days, you lose your job. Now you got a family. Uh the breadwinners in jail or had been in jail, lost their job. Now they lose their place of a residence. Now there's home insecurity. You know, and a lot of people, we know this, in many of our communities are one paycheck away from losing their house, uh, losing their car. Uh, so we, there are so many ramifications to the decisions that we make around the criminal justice system that I don't think we paid enough attention to. You know, we're always wondering how people end up in these situations. You start to trace it back. And the criminal justice, the decisions we make within the criminal justice system has something to do with that. And, and it hasn't necessarily, those decisions haven't necessarily made us any safer. And, and COVID has started to, to reveal that. Um, in our, our place, we have reduced our population by almost 60%. So working with the courts. Uh, so, and, and we haven't seen this tremendous crime spree, this spike in crime as a result of the individuals that are in the jail, letting them out of the jail. They were, they were mostly low-level offenders anyway, nonviolent offenders. Um, so they weren't a threat. To, uh, so what I'm hoping is, as bad as uh, COVID has been, as bad as the impact of COVID has been, that there's a lesson that we learn from COVID that we take forward after when we get back to some sense of normalcy, whatever that is, uh, that we take that and we learn from it 
and it influences the criminal justice system decision making uh, moving forward. So one more question and then I'll let you go. Um, how do we get more sheriffs to become part of criminal justice reform? Um, I, 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 I think, well, it's, it's, it's who you elect, right? It's who you elect. I think, so not just sheriffs, but chiefs of police. Um, and, and now when I talk to groups, I say, look, understand what outcomes you want in your community as it relates to public safety and understand the values that you have in the community relative to public safety to help you get to those outcomes. And when there's a person that says they want to run for sheriff, ask them questions about their values. Ask them questions about those outcomes. Ask them to describe to you the strategies they would put in place to achieve the outcomes that you desire. And if that person can't speak to it, then that's not the person you want leading your sheriff's office. And, and more importantly, go recruit someone that shares those values, that wants the same outcomes, that can speak not just in talking points, but with a high degree of specificity, as, as high as they can get, in terms of how they would go about doing it. Um, and I think that's that, that that at the end of the day, the sheriff is is probably the closest law enforcement official to to the people. I think we lost the sheriff. Well, we were just about done. We'll see if oh there he is. Lost you there. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, they're the closest to the people. So they should be they should be the ones representing the values of the people. And the last thing I'll say in the criminal justice is so same thing for a chief and they're they're they're, they're more chief. But you don't talk directly to the chief. You talk to the person that hires the chief, the city manager or the mayor or city council. And it really is it's the government of the people. People get the government they they deserve. They ask for it and they demand for it. So not just saying I want a a, a, a police review board. Because the police review board might not get you to the outcomes you want. Start with here's how here's the experience we want in our community and our relationship to the police. Now let's talk about how we get that experience, and we want a chief that's going to advocate that. So when the chief is being interviewed, when they got the candidates have to present to the public, it's an engaged and educated public that can hold the people that make that final decision accountable to bring in the right person that's going to lead those police agents. So let me ask you one more, sorry. Um, and, and that is, what question should we ask? I mean, what, what is like the tell if, if, in, in your view? So I, I think one of the things you ask them is, um, first ask them, what's their definition of public safety? Explain to me what public safety is. Explain to me, uh, do they believe in the co-production of public safety, working with the community. Because they'll say, well, you know, I believe in community policing. Well, community policing, it can be one of two things. It can be the operational philosophy of the organization, or it could be a program. So challenge that sheriff or that police chief to explain to, to, to you what their operational uh, philosophy is around service, what their values are. 
you know, who are they looking for to hire? What kind of police officer, what values or competencies do the police officers that they would hire, would they have, and how would that manifest itself in terms of service to the community? I think it's those kind of questions, because those are the questions, quite frankly, that shape the culture of the agency. And it's the culture of the agency that means everything. So you will have a police chief that have master's degrees and, and, and been to all these classes, and they can tell you all the policies that they'll put in place, all the training that they'll put in place, and all of that is good. But the real issue is what kind of culture are they going to create in the organization? Um, Mark Fields, former CEO of Ford, said... Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. Well, very good. I want to thank you for being on our show and uh, having this great discussion with me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That was Sheriff Jerry Clayton. He is the sheriff of Washtenaw County in Michigan, and he's one of the progressive uh, sheriffs. And we had a very interesting conversation with him today on a whole range of issues. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.